Welcome to a great day for Hockey Talk. Brought to you by our founding partner, PPG, official paint of the Penguins. Here's Paul Steigerwald. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. This is a hockey announcer talk in this episode. You know, one thing that I've noticed about hockey announcers, my favorite ones and the greatest ones are ones with a kind of character to their voice. If you think about it, Mike Lang certainly has that. Rick Jennerette, the voice of the Buffalo Sabres, has that. Um, Dan Kelly, the great announcer of the St. Louis Blues and pretty much the voice of hockey uh, in Canada for many years, had that. And, and there are other guys you could probably name who have a certain quality to their voice. Another guy who comes to mind is Pat Foley, the voice of the Chicago Blackhawks. Well, there's no question that Doc Emmerich has a special quality to his voice, almost a character to his voice. And uh, I think that's one of the big reasons why he is so famous and why he is basically the voice of hockey in the United States. He won the Lester Patrick Award in 2004. He won the Foster Hewitt Award. Uh, delivered by the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2008. He has won six National Emmy Awards for Excellence in Sports Broadcasting. He was inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. He taught speech and broadcasting at Geneva College from 1969 to 71. He has worked for CBS, NBC, ESPN, Fox, TNT, ABC, FSN, PRISM, and a few more. He has worked five Olympic Games for NBC. He's done the World Cup. He's done NFL football, NCAA basketball, and he has a Ph.D. from Bowling Green University. He got that in 1976. That's why he has the nickname Doc Emmerich. And you know what else he's done? (laughs) He's called water polo in the Olympics. And we let off our conversation with a little joke about him being the greatest water polo announcer of all time. I know Prince Harry watched one of the games that I did over in London. (laughs) He was there. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Staggy, he was in a baseball cap, and he was integrated in with the rest of the population. And I think there were probably a lot of Brits that didn't even know he was there. <laughs> but he was there to watch Great Britain play, and unfortunately, he didn't help them a whole lot. They were trying and trying hard. But as the host nation, they got a team there. But that was about all you could say about the team. They tried, but that was it. Yeah, well, you did a great job. That's all I know. You and Pierre Maguire actually doing water polo. Cross <laughs> But I want to ask you, what was your first exposure to hockey? It was uh, on television in the 1960 era. Um, there was a spinoff out of the 1960 Olympics and the gold medal uh, that the U.S. won in Squaw Valley. CBS started doing some Saturday afternoon games, and on a very grainy black-and-white TV in rural Indiana, I got a chance to see it for the first time. And then I pestered my parents to take me to a game in Fort Wayne later that calendar year in 1960, and that was the first time that I'd ever seen hockey live. And at that point, I was hooked. Uh, That was probably two months after Maz hit the home run and made me a very happy kid. That's great. Was Bob Chase the announcer for the Fort Wayne Comets yet? He was. He had been (laughs) on duty for seven years by that point. That's amazing. Uh, He came in 1953, and the team came in 1952. So he had been on duty, and I'd heard some of his broadcasts uh, on the radio, but I'd never seen a game live. And You know as well as I, Staggy, when you see this game live, that's what hooked you, and that's what hooked me that night. It was an epiphany moment for me. I don't know when yours came, but mine came on December 10th, 1960, and I was forever changed. 
Well, mine came certainly in the 60s. Uh, my dad took me to see the Hornets, but I don't think it was then. I think it was later, 69-70, when I went to see Penguin games, and um, Jack Riley was nice enough to give me tickets and my friends, and we would go. And I could sit anywhere I wanted, basically, in the building, and I always loved to sit behind the goaltenders, and I got totally hooked. And then, you know, I thought I wanted to be a broadcaster at a young age, Doc, and uh, but when I heard hockey announcing, that really got me. And I wonder if there was some of that for you, too, where, you know, yeah, you wanted to get into – calling games or whatever at some point in your life, but there was something about calling hockey games that intrigued you. Yes, I think, too, uh, the thing that intrigued me about hockey initially was how rough it was and how emotionally you would get so wrapped up in it because of the fights and because of the heavy hitting. And then the, the kicker for it all was that your team, out of all of that mayhem, would score a goal and the crowd would just go nuts on top of how emotionally wrought they were from the rough stuff that led up to the scoring of a goal. So I think to be a part of that and to be able to share that and maybe get an emotional high off of just sharing that, that was what really kicked me into being able to do hockey games. Now, the the type of action that I saw back then is different now. It's a faster game. It has as we saw last year, a total of more hits than have ever been recorded in an NHL season were last year. It's, it's a, a totally different kind of sport. It's a faster sport, heavier hitting sport, not as rough a sport or not as fistic a sport as it was, but it still is an exciting sport, and I wind up getting excited for each game that I wind up being assigned to, as well as games that I'm sitting at home watching on off nights. So I... There, there was an expression that I heard used on Ken Burns' country uh, series that recently was on PBS, that one of the singers was asked about what country music was like and what it's like today, and she said, you can't stick your foot in the same river twice because the river is constantly changing, and I think it's that way in hockey, too. I think the game is constantly changing, but I still don't lack for a love of it. Now, even though we recognize that it's different than when the Penguins first rolled into town in the fall of 1967, it's a different game, but it's still wonderful. And you certainly do bring that passion to the game every night. You can hear it in your voice and uh, in your call. Round behind by Ellis. Arriving first is Kunitz. Kunitz to the outside. Got it back to Schultz. And a shot went wide. Rebound off the boards. They score! The Penguins have scored in his hard quest off the boards was shaken in and Hornquist who has not played a lot in the game made the most of the time that time and it's one to nothing you came to Penguins games as a pro bono writer for the Beaver County Times in what year 69 it was um, Red Kelly was the coach 1970-71 yeah I I went to Jack Mitchell who was the editor there and I said I'll I'll cover the Penguins for free if you get me a pass he said sounds like a good deal to me and so uh, I wound up there where were you at that time were you still a a kid going to games yeah I was still uh, in high school and uh, you know on my way to Kent State University where I went to basically get into hockey I went there for that reason and Yeah, I was still going to Penguins games and playing a little hockey. I was a goalie at that time in my junior, senior years of high school when you were uh, coming to games. I heard your Kent State commercials on Penguins radio broadcast just last week, as a matter of fact. Very good. Um, Yeah, uh, so I I wound up sitting at the end because at that time the, uh, the press 
because there had been more of them than there were in the first three years, the press wound up sitting in the end zone of the lower bowl of old Civic Arena at that time. On the last three rows, they created a, a press section. And so um, uh, the, the regular beat writers and the regular radio and TV people, Dick Stockton and Myron Cope and Bill Hufelder and uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, Jimmy, Jordan? Uh, Jimmy Jordan? Johnson. Jimmy, Jimmy Jordan. Jordan, yeah. Yep. They all had the front row seats. And those of us from the outlying papers were in the third and last row. And uh, we, would, we would wind up uh, conspiring with each other when goals were scored because there was no telecast and there was no way of looking at replays. We would sort of put our heads together and determine what happened on goal scoring plays. And then <laughs> we would arrive at how it all took place. And then that would be all of our stories the next day because there was no replay to go by. That is awesome. So we would say, who passed it to whom? And he was at the side of the net, wasn't he? Yeah. Okay. So that's it. <laughs> wow. So you're doing that. Uh, you're doing it for the Beaver County Times. How did you end up then moving on to get your first job at Port Huron? Well, it was. Um, uh, I was teaching at Geneva College, and they were very nice to me there. And they, uh, I taught Tuesday and Thursdays. I had three classes a day on Tuesday and Thursday. And I realized after two years there, I would go back to Fort Wayne over Christmas vacation and sit in the stands on Wednesday nights when they didn't sell out and call these games on tape recordings to myself. And I realized that with a master's degree teaching at Geneva, uh, if, if my life ahead was going to be college teaching, then I'd better go get the doctorate while I was young and single um, because it was going to be hard to do once married. And, uh, and so I applied to two schools um, closer to home in the Midwest that had doctoral programs in radio, TV, and film, but also had campus radio stations that carried the hockey team's games, Michigan and Bowling Green. And I went out and visited Bowling Green after it applied, and a guy named Terry Shaw was the guy who was a staff member, and he broadcast the football, basketball, and hockey games. But they made provision for a student to do the second period of the hockey games, and that guy had just graduated. Wow. And so he and I struck up a conversation while I was visiting, and he said, look, if you accept this, the assistantship that they're offering to come to Bowling Green, I'll guarantee you the second period of hockey games. Well, that made it easy. So I went to Bowling Green and did my coursework there for two years and got to do 18 home periods of hockey each of the two years because we didn't do the road games. And then I had a demo that I could send out. And it was legitimate, not like the ones that I had done at the Coliseum in Fort Wayne on tape. I had a legitimate air check to send out, like I'd done two previous times to just about any team that moved in minor league hockey. Well, as fate would have it, um, a team in Port Huron, Michigan, and the IHL uh, responded. And uh, I went up there, and for 160 a week, I was in business, and that was 47 years ago. Awesome. I... Uh... I just love you that story. In, so you many were guys. Downtown with the Red Wings, right? I was, but I got a job in a similar way. I mean, I, I played a demo of a ga- tape of me taping a game in the Civic Arena stands between the Penguins and Red Wings, and I got a job in Johnstown, and it happened to be the Johnstown Red Wings, so it sounded good already to them, and so I was able to go up there. But it's a similar yeah. uh, way of doing it. I went to Kent State and did a little bit of college hockey, not much play by play, but I. I I made sure I got a gig. That, you know, I'll tell you what, I remember sending those tapes all around and calling people and, 
you know, and just hoping beyond hope that I would get a job. I just wanted to do it so badly, and I'm sure you were the same way. So you end up in Port Huron. You're there a couple of years. You end up going to Maine, right, and the Maine Mariners. Yeah, they, yeah we, we had a situation unlike yours in Johnstone where I think the team was pretty much a sure thing to stay there year after year. In Port Huron, our team was owned by the city, and so it had to go through the city budget, and we were losing $300,000 a year in the mid-'70s. $300,000 was a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. And this was a town of 30,000 people, so each summer there was always this this debate going on, are the, are the flags, they were later called the flags, are they going to be back? And so each summer was uncertain, and so I went through four years of that. Philadelphia created a farm team of their own in Portland, Maine. They had been sharing in Springfield, and they wanted more control. They had just won two championships, and then one more year they'd gotten to the final against Montreal. So that summer, Ed Snyder decided he was going to have his own American League team so he could call the shots on who was going to play and all of that. So they created a team in Portland, Maine called the Mariners. They hired Bob McCammon away from Port Huron as coach, and uh, we had a – uh, an open competition for the broadcasting job, and there were 40 applicants, and I was the lucky winner. Uh, I got to go to Portland, Maine, which was a Flyers farm team. There was going to be no worries about whether they were going to exist year to year. And after the team went 4-8-3 and three in the first 15 games of their inaugural season, Eddie put in the word to Keith Allen, we don't want to have a loser in our first year. And so right around Thanksgiving time, Keith made four transactions, including bringing in Terry Murray, who won the Eddie Shore Trophy for Best Defenseman in the American League the next two years, uh, Blake Dunlop, who turned out to be the number two centerman in the league. And, you know, so all of a sudden, by Christmas, we were in first place, won the regular season championship and the playoff championship two straight years. So we basically packed a winner into Portland for two straight years, and uh, and lost in the playoffs the third year I was there to a team called the New Brunswick Hawks that had in the lineup Bruce Boudreau, Daryl Sutter, Ron Wilson, and a whole bunch of other guys. And these were the guys that became future coaches in the league. So they had a legitimate team, and they beat us out. But the Flyers promoted from within, and after the third year, they brought me into Philly, and that was my arrival into the NHL. But it took seven years though I wouldn't have traded the years in the minors for anything. You know, I remember uh, there was a program or a picture in a program of the Maine Mariners of the team sitting at the counter of a diner. Uh, they took the picture of all the players sitting there like they were waiting to you know, eat their pie or something. It was a really cool picture of a hockey team that I've never seen since. I thought it was a good idea. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a really cool idea, the, the way they shot it, of them sitting in perspective you know, down the, down the diner counter. Uh, you know, all sitting there, probably some some diner in Maine, you know, Portland, Maine, somewhere. Uh, but I I do remember thinking that was such a cool name, the Maine Mariners, and there was something intriguing about that that team to me. And that's great that you were able to call those games. Um, they arrived in. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul. They, no, no, they arrived in Portland on the Santa Maria. There was a big, uh, an enormous ship that was docked in the area that was doing. Uh, cruises in the area, and so this ship that looked like Christopher Columbus should have been on it. That was how the team made its arrival into Portland for its first season. That's awesome. It was just bizarre. Pete Peters, Rick St. Croix, all those guys, as well as Terry Crisp, who was an assistant coach in Philadelphia, and Bob McCammon, all those guys arrived on the Santa Maria into Portland Harbor. <laughs> I, it, 
It, uh, do I do? Am I right in remembering they had some tough guys in their lineup too? Because <laughs> they were the Flyers farm team after all. Yeah, they had two lines of skill guys and two lines of hammers. Ah, <laughs> uh, just what we would expect from the Philadelphia Flyers. So you go on to the Flyers. Do you remember uh, Flyers fans giving a darn about the Penguins at that time? Because P- Penguins fans have always hated the Flyers, uh, and I just wondered if the if the feeling was mutual. Well, the the problem was, and you and Mike Lang both remember that period of time in, in Flyers history where Gene Hart would arrive with this sheet of paper that would have the futility of the Penguins against the Flyers back through the years, and it was during that period of time. So that that hatred had not really kindled as much in Philadelphia as the disdain had in Pittsburgh, but it was coming, and it didn't take long before – Eventually, uh, you know, I think that a lot of that arrived during that uh, 1988 playoff series when when Mario Lemieux erupted for all of those points, and it went to the the very last game, the seventh game when Ken Reggett had to come in for Ron Hextall. There was a tremendous respect that came for the Penguins by the Flyers in that year, and then of course. Uh, then they were getting whipped a few times as the years followed. But during the early years in the 1980s, that was still that dominance the Flyers had over them in that long streak. Doc, when you ended up with the New Jersey Devils, I think it was your second stint with the Devils when you were calling them and they won the Stanley Cup in 95. You were actually calling the the championship for the network, but you were the voice of the Devils. And I never saw you in any way as being a guy who could be construed as a homer, although I'm sure that Everyone who followed the Devils knew that you wanted the Devils to win, but it never seemed to me that you, uh, you know, went, went across the line to where you might offend the fans of the other club. Uh, how did you do that back in '95 when you had that opportunity? Well, it, it became a mandate of the network I worked for in in the regular season games too. MSG Network in New York had had the rights to not only the Devils but in Sports Channel, but the Islanders and, and the Rangers. And despite the, the perception that the fans of other teams would have if they were listening to the announcers for the Rangers, Islanders, or Devils, um, our bosses wanted us to play it pretty much down the middle, which, you know, in, in a one-team town like Philadelphia, uh, it was just the reverse. And so it wasn't as big a stretch to do a network game involving the team that I had followed all year. Yes, in your heart, you want to see the guys that you know really well rewarded. But by the same token, Detroit had had a magnificent year and had had done a great job on Chicago in the conference final, too. But I remember one thing about that fourth and final game. um, there were about six minutes to go, and it was clear after Sean Chambers had scored and the Devils were ahead 5-2, to two, it was clear they were going to win. And I was working with John Davidson, who's just this eloquent guy who everybody, everybody that got a National Network contract wanted John to be the color analyst for them. And there, there was a reason for that, of course. And there was a commercial break, and John said these last – and, of course, his the New York Rangers, who he worked for, had – won the previous year, and he turned to me with his headset off, and he said, these last six minutes are going to go really fast, Doc, so make sure you enjoy them. And he was right. Uh, And Mike Peluso, who was this rugged Jay Caulfield type of winger, uh, started crying at the bench, and he was actually 
John was documenting that he missed shifts because of his emotions just got away from him. He realized that here he was, this guy from the Iron Range in Minnesota. He was going to win the Stanley Cup. And he started crying. And the camera showed him in tears. And he was kind of shielding his face because he didn't want to be seen. But he had actually missed a shift with uh, Bobby Holik and and, uh, Randy McKay. And uh, even in the handshake line, he was still kind of had his head buried in his shoulder as he was shaking hands with the Red Wings. Those are, I guess, uh, two memories that I have from from that last game. But, uh, yeah, you, you rarely have that opportunity because the 1994 was the last year that the local broadcasters got to work all the way to the finish. You know, Doc, you're such a great storyteller, and that is just a phenomenal story you just told. And you're able to weave stories like that into your broadcast uh, would you consider yourself maybe a storyteller first and foremost uh, when you think about what separates you from other guys? No, I don't know, Paul. You, you know, we all, that's one of the things that we all enjoy about traveling around and being with a team. And I don't know how many you probably, if you had a file card, that was one of the things that I, that I heard uh, the one time I came to work with Bob Costas to do a Pirates game about four years ago, uh, I, that, you know, a lot of what you learn, you sit around the, the night before at dinner, and, and these guys like Bob will tell stories. Vin Scully had a three-by-five card file, hmm. and he did baseball all those years, and he would have individual stories about players. And he'd have a card file. So when the guy would come to bat, he'd just he'd leaf through the card file. And, and in between pitches, of course, which you can do in baseball, why he would have these. And your card file on the years that you traveled with the Penguins has to be enormous. But we all have these things, and it's just a question of whether the sport will allow you the time to do it. And uh, working with Bill Clement all those years in, in Philadelphia and, and on ESPN and also with Sports Channel America, uh, we, we both would chastise one another and, and ourselves when we got burned trying to get a story in. Uh, so we've developed a way of trying to shorten it up and, and somehow or other hoping to get it in without getting killed. And it still happens, and you still kick yourself for doing it. But the reverse of not trying to do that is that then it becomes just identifying players, and I think the telecast becomes more clinical and antiseptic. So we all have these stories. And I think I probably take a little more chances with trying to get things like that in while the play is going on. But there is a danger that's built into doing it. I think there was a lot. It was a lot easier to weave a story into a game during the dead puck era. I can tell you that. Yes, because, and, and then doing it for the Penguins was never easy. I can't tell you how many times I tried to start a story and the Penguins would score a goal because they were so good at it. So you had to be really careful not to start something you couldn't finish. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I have a feeling the mid the mid 90s with the Devils was probably I probably got <laughs> spoiled cuz I could if they got a one nothing lead, why they were going to win the game. How many games do you do a year now, Doc? Uh it's around 50. Um when I hit 65 years of age, um I I quoted Lou Lamorello to himself. Uh he used to say before you make any important decision, you need to do two things. Look in the mirror and look at your birth certificate. <laughs> And so when I hit 65 years of age, I called Lou and I quoted himself to himself. And he said, this is not a fun call to receive. But he also understood that I was doing 120 games a year, doing both 
uh, NBC and Versus at that time, and and then NBCSN it became, and that that was a lot of travel, and it was and there was one time in March of that year that I had done eight games in ten days, and all eight were in different cities. Well, you know what our sport is like; it's a one it's a one game visit. And you never, it's not like baseball where you stay in a city for three straight days until you get the playoffs. And so it was taxing. And I can't kid myself that the eighth game out of that stretch of eight and ten days was as good as the first one. Because you try to get to morning skates, which means you're through the metal detector at 530 in the morning each of those days. Well, you can't be as good on the eighth day as you were on the first because fatigue sets in and you just can't be as good. So I decided that I wanted to try to be better at what I was doing as I was getting further along in years and also wanted to, you know, actually have some days to spend with Joyce and the dogs and rest. And so it was at that time that uh, I informed MSG and and the Devils that I sure appreciated all the years. But uh, so it, it went from 120 down to 70, and now it's down to 50. So it's 25 or so in the regular season, average of about one a week, and then whatever it turns out to be for four rounds of the playoffs. I've been blessed by the people at NBC. They just tell me to let them know each summer whether this is it or whether I want to go one more year. So it's a bunch of Walter Alston contracts that only people that are 75 years old will understand this great Dodger manager that continually had one-year deals. Doc, uh, Lou, speaking of Lou, understood the concept of legible numbers on uniforms. Uh, He did, didn't he? He did. Didn't he sit in the last row of the uh, arena in New Jersey when they were trying different uniforms to make sure that he could read the numbers and the names up there? I mean, that's yeah. the, that's now you talk about being the friend of every broadcaster in the world doing that, because I know that it bugs you when you can't see the numbers. And, boy, you've you've put yourself in some situations where you've had to really, really I don't know how you do it. I, I really don't, because not only, you know, the, well, the, the winter classics, the international games that you do with all those different players, you know, from different countries playing each other and you've got to learn them quickly. It's I, I'm, I'm just blown away by your ability to do that. Well, you get helped a little bit in in some respects. Now, Lou, when they change from red and green to red and black, that is exactly you you have it right on the head. That's exactly what happened. He had he had office employees go down on the cement floor in the summertime of the Meadowlands and put the jerseys on and just continually walk around on the cement floor because he wanted it the, those sleeve numbers, which is what you and I go off of. It's a four inch number. And some places you're 150 feet away. He wanted that number to stand out, not only for us, but for the people paying the price of admission to be able to identify his players. And uh, so, yes, he, he became a friend of all of us for that. And, our, uh, and also, uh, the other side of it, too, is that NBC has been very understanding about getting us a good location in places where it is difficult to see. Example, in Minnesota or in Dallas or places where you are so far away, uh, they will spend a little extra and get us down on the concourse where we stand a fighting chance. So they do listen to us when, when we need help. You have seen just about everything in hockey and called just about everything, but I know one thing you haven't called is the, an overtime game winner in Game 7 of a Stanley Cup final. You're probably right. And you, I, I haven't thought about that, but you're probably right. So maybe someday, but if not, 
I hope it It'll happens for you. Fine. Do, you. do you know that a, a Pittsburgher, a former Pittsburgher from Lower Burrell, Pennsylvania, was one of the last guys to do it? Who's that? Pete Babando. <laughs> he did it for the Detroit Red Wings in double overtime in 1950. He's from Lower Borough, Pennsylvania. The last one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew you would know that. I wonder if he had a yingling out. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you this. Uh, that would be exciting. It doesn't happen that often, obviously. Or And if, if it did, you probably would have had a chance of calling it. Um, well, it's it's been a, a lot of fun like you and I have both enjoyed being around this sport all these years and we still continue to do it i i had an opportunity to speak to uh journalism classes as you have about this and i tell them that it's a wonderful way to earn a living and to just uh, try as hard as they can to get into it because you get in free you get a good seat for the game you get to work with some of the best athletes in the world and some of the nicest people and then twice a month they send you something in the mail. <laughs> and there's just nothing wrong with any of that. I and to do it that. for 47 years and for you to, to have been around it for probably four decades, maybe close to five, it's just there's no law that you have to hate your job. Doc, i got to ask you uh, this also because before you go, you're living in St. Clair, Michigan, which is right down the St. Clair River from Port Huron. Why do you live in St. Clair? Um, it was largely because both my wife and I uh, liked that area a lot. She grew up in Port Huron, and uh, St. Clair is about 10 miles from there. And uh, we uh, got a chance, because the networks don't care where you live, we got a chance 22 years ago to move back there. At that time, uh, her family was getting older, and so it gave her proximity to the family. She wasn't working anymore. Uh, and at that time, too, my family was living, and they were in Indiana. So it got us back closer, and because the, uh, the network didn't care where we lived, um, MSG Network in New York that carried the Devils games, they didn't care. And NBC, of course, didn't care either. So uh, it gave us the luxury of not having to live in a designated place other than one that we chose. And we both uh, chose it for family reasons and also because we liked being around a lot of water just like you guys do here. Yeah, you got those freighters, those beautiful lake freighters coming right down that river there all the da- time. You probably hear their horns. Thousand horn. footers. Yeah, it's yeah, great stuff. I love footers it. Thousand footers. On foggy mornings, they blast at each other, and it's kind of fun. Yes, it is. And what, what kind of dogs do you have? We have Yorkshire Terriers. They're about um, 11 pounds, so they're not miniatures. They're not the kind that you can hold in one hand. It takes two arms to hold these <laughs> little ones, but they're they're full of personality, and they're just a lot of fun. Doc, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You know that we could do, or I could, maybe not you, but I could definitely do like five more of them just to hear you talk about hockey and to share these moments. But, uh, again, uh, thanks for taking the time, and it's always a pleasure. Fun for me, too, Paul. Always good to see you, too, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Our thanks to Doc Emmerich, a very busy man, for taking the time to talk to us on this edition of It's a Great Day for Hockey Talk. This is Paul Steigerwald, and we'll talk to you next time.